Girl here. Hi, I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about numbers in parentheses, a meaty middle about using missing commas to get out of parking tickets, and a tidbit about whether the minions are speaking a real language. Before we get to the quick and dirty tip, I have a correction from last week. In the segment on last names, I said that last names are sometimes called Christian names, and that isn't true. Christian name is another term for a first name, not a last name. Sorry. And now, on to this week's tip. Two readers recently asked whether they need to repeat a number in parentheses after they write out the word. If you were looking at the transcript of this podcast, you'd see that I did not put the numeral 2 in parentheses after the word 2 when I wrote about the two readers. I just wrote the word 2. Putting the number in parentheses after the word is unnecessary, and no style guide that I'm aware of calls for it. It has a sense of legalese to it, but from what I can tell, it's not even required in legal writing anymore. Gardner's Modern American Usage says it was originally done in legal writing to prevent fraudulent alterations. I guess if you had both the word and the numeral to alter, it would be harder than if you just had one or the other to alter. So that's why you see it sometimes. The number in parentheses after the word is a relic of legal writing, but it's not something you need to include in your writing today. And that was your quick and dirty tip. On to our piece about the parking ticket. I'm sure many of you saw the same story I did last week about the woman who got out of a parking ticket because the parking sign was missing a comma. Well, that story got me wondering about how often that would really work. So I asked a real lawyer, Nancy Green, to tell us more about punctuation, writing, and the law. Here's Nancy's piece. Earlier this month, the Ohio Court of Appeals found that a parking ticket issued to Andrea Camilleri was unenforceable. The judge ruled that Ms. Camilleri's pickup truck wasn't covered by a law that applied to, quote, any motor vehicle camper, trailer, farm implement, and or non-motorized vehicle, unquote. That's motor vehicle camper rather than motor vehicle, comma, camper, as the village where the pickup truck was parked tried to argue. The village lost, and the internet went wild with the discussion of the missing comma. Was the judge right? Well, probably. The court's role as the guardian of the law played a major role in the result. The parking law Miss Camilleri was accused of violating is a statute, a written rule created by some act of the legislature. And it's the court's job to determine the lawmaker's intent and enforce the law. Intent is usually obvious from the words in the law. Also, a court looks at the whole law and not just the individual words or phrases. In other words, a court uses the plain meaning of the words unless they could mean more than one thing, or unless applying the language literally leads to an absurd result. So what the people who wrote the law meant, rather than what the actual words say, only matters when the law isn't clear. Now, let's look at the parking case again. Ms. Camilleri was cited for violating a law which says, quote, it shall be unlawful for any person to park upon any street in the village, any motor vehicle camper, trailer, farm implement, 
and or non-motorized vehicle for a continued period of 24 hours. The only issue the court considered was whether the parking ban applied to pickup trucks. Ms. Camilleri argued that her truck wasn't a motor vehicle camper. The village argued that reading the law in context made it obvious that a comma had been left out, and the law applied to any motor vehicle and any camper. After the initial trial court went with the village, Ms. Camilleri appealed, taking her case to a higher court. Referencing the Chicago Manual of Style, that higher court, the Ohio Court of Appeals, applied the general grammar rule that items in a list are separated by commas. Without a separating comma, the phrase motor vehicle camper referred to one item. The structure of the sentence was also consistent with this reading, based on another village law that defined motor vehicle and the common meaning of camper in Webster's New World College Dictionary. The court ruled that a motor vehicle camper was, quote, a vehicle propelled or drawn by power other than muscle power equipped for camping, unquote. Motorhomes and other recreational vehicles would fall into this plain meaning definition. Would the result have been different if the plain meaning definition was robotic Boy Scout rather than something like an RV? Yes, since preventing robotic Boy Scouts from parking on the street would be just silly. In that case, the court would have looked at what the village meant rather than what it said. Ultimately, the court found that if the village wanted pickup trucks covered by the law, it should have inserted a comma between motor vehicle and camper to separate the items. The village could rewrite the law, but for now, Ms. Camilleri's pickup truck can stay parked on the street for as long as she wants. The court was right for another reason, too. Trailers, farm implements, and non-motorized vehicles were the other vehicles not allowed to park for more than 24 hours. A motorized vehicle isn't like the other vehicles in the list. It seems likely that the village really meant to restrict parking of vehicles like RVs and campers rather than people's personal cars. Now, all this may make you wonder about another prominent recent case that went the other way. If the law is supposed to be read the way it was written, then why did the Supreme Court recently uphold a provision of the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, based on its intent rather than on a strict, literal meaning of the sentence in question. Unlike the parking law, which is only a few lines long, Obamacare is a 906-page law. The Supreme Court considered the entire law in deciding what the challenged four words, one subclause, meant. The Supreme Court found that the intent of the law as demonstrated in the rest of the language, was to provide insurance to all Americans. The government pointed out that if the subclause was read literally, then fewer people would be able to afford insurance, and the entire health care scheme set out in the law would collapse. An absurd result. So, the Supreme Court ruled for the government based on the law's intent, rather than what it actually said. So, who wins when a law is poorly written? Well, the lawyers, right? No, just kidding. But seriously, ambiguity creates litigation. Grammar mistakes give lawyers another argument to support their cases and fight for their clients. These mistakes don't guarantee a win 
because sometimes the clear meaning of the law applies, as it did for Ms. Camilleri, and other times the law's intent carries the day, as in the Supreme Court's ruling on the Affordable Care Act. Does grammar really matter in the law? Yes, grammar matters. Lawyers tell war stories about winning cases based on points of grammar. Cases can turn on whether a particular phrase applies to a specific clause. So far, no one is keeping statistics on how often grammar affects a court's ruling. Until someone does a comprehensive study, grammar fans will just have to enjoy the occasional case that goes viral. That segment was written by Nancy Green Esquire. Repeatedly told that she's not your typical lawyer, Nancy takes all that fancy legal mumbo-jumbo and demystifies it. You can find her on the web at ndglaw.com, on Facebook as Green Law Firm, that's G-R-E-E-N-E Law Firm, and on Twitter as Nancy D. Green, that's Green spelled G-R-E-E-N-E. Thanks, Nancy. And now, on to the Minions. Like everyone else, I love the minions in the Despicable Me movies. But as someone who also loves language, I've wondered about the minions' language. Is it real, or is it nonsense? Some movies have hired linguists to construct new languages. For example, Avatar producers hired a linguist to construct the Navi language. Star Trek producers hired a linguist to construct Klingon. And Land of the Lost producers hired a linguist to construct the Pakuni language. So I wondered whether Universal did the same thing for the Minions. Some press reports say that the film's directors, Pierre Coffin and Chris Renaud, created the language themselves. They call it Minionese, and they actually recorded some of the Minion voices themselves. Some reports go so far as to say that every Minionese word has a specific meaning. However, a section from the production notes of the 2013 movie says the language is just gibberish, with random foreign words thrown in. This is from Pierre Coffin. He said, quote, So these words pop out, and I have them speak Indian, French, English, Spanish, and Italian. I mix up all these ridiculous-sounding words because they sound good, not because they necessarily mean something, unquote. And yes, I know that Indian isn't an actual language. And I've seen people say they've noticed some words that come from Hebrew, Japanese, Filipino, and Indonesian, too. Coffin's off-the-cuff vocals evidently hit a mark because the characters took off, audiences absolutely fell in love with them, and now, of course, they have their own spin-off movie. Renaud continues his fellow director's story in the production notes. He says, quote, Their language sounds silly, but when you believe that they're actually communicating, that's what makes it funnier. What's great about the Minion language, while it's gibberish, it sounds real because Pierre puts in words from many languages and does the lion's share of the Minion's recordings. There are a lot of food references. For example, poulet tikka masala is French for the Indian chicken dish. Unquote. Still, fans have picked out words that seem to have specific meanings in the movies. Scattered around various websites, you can find translations of certain Minionese words. Baboy means toy. Bido means I'm sorry. Paratu means roughly for you. And Laboda means marriage. And Google Translate tells me this means wedding in Spanish. The Minions also mix in English words, including okay, potato, idiot, and what? 
The largest chunk of translated text I could find was courtesy of a Best Buy app designed for Despicable Me 2 that claims to translate the Minions scene during the closing credits of that movie. Supposedly, the Minions were saying things such as, You're going down, skinny boy. In your face, I can hear Twilight in the next theater. Team Jacob rules. And, Sir, you've made a mockery of our noble contest. Maybe an enterprising fan or a budding linguist will match the translation to the words the Minionese are saying in the movie and find patterns and meanings the directors themselves didn't even know were there. And that was your tidbit. The Minions don't speak a real language, but their gibberish includes some words that have meanings and many words mixed together from different languages. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find the articles that go with each podcast segment at quickanddirtytips.com, along with hundreds of other language articles and those from our 14 other podcast hosts. That's all. Thanks for listening.